Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Kirk LaPointe. I'm Haley Wooden. Our first guest today will deliver an annual address to the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade later this week. Brian Cox is the president and CEO of the Mining Association of British Columbia, and he joins us in studio today. Thanks for coming on. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. We're actually halfway through BC Mining Month, the first ever mining month we have in British Columbia. Tell us a bit about the idea behind sort of rallying and branding May as Mining Month. Yeah, well, I mean, we're such a great industry, we deserve an entire month. And that's uh, <laughs> that's really what we we thought at the end. Do you take industry. the 11 months off? Yeah, yeah exactly. The other, this is yeah, the only yeah, month we're work, working. Work is, hard uh, one we're month. working hard. Yeah. But really, though, uh, Mining Week was previously what we had in British Columbia. It's actually National Mining Week. And, and really what we've been finding over the last few years is that events have been spilling out into the entire month because these are really community-driven events across the province. So... Uh, when I came into the role last year, I thought, you know, we really need to actually formalize this as as a month and and build it out as best we can with our communities. So I went to the provincial government, uh, Minister Mungal, and I said, hey, would you be interested in proclaiming the entire month as uh, as as mining month rather than the, than the week? And to her credit, uh, without a hesitation, she said, absolutely, uh, we need to talk about our industry. So uh, here we are. And it, and it intersects, interestingly, of course, with the BC Tech Summit, which is taking place this week. And we've talked before on this pro- in our podcasts and show about the fact that the mining sector is really the tech sector these days. So how do you manage to integrate these two events as well? Yeah, it's a really exciting opportunity this year. This is uh, this will be the 21st time that a, a president of the Mining Association has spoken to the Board of Trade, and this is the first year that we're doing it in conjunction with the Tax Summit. And to your point, Kirk, this is exactly what the conversation is now. We have been a mining hub in this province for many, many years. As you know, Vancouver is a mining hub uh, globally. People look to this jurisdiction. We're also really rapidly becoming a technology hub. So the, the real powerful conversations right now are about marrying those two together Mm-hmm. By doing so, we're actually getting to the point where we're going to be able to create that technology to export to the world so that we're truly becoming the technology mining hub of the world where we're building those mines of tomorrow all over the world with that hub here in British Columbia. So so these are the powerful stories that we're we're starting to tell and weave throughout the industry. I'm interested to know whether junior miners, smaller companies are able to embrace technology at, at a similar level as, say, gold corp or tech resources can, because they have been pioneers to some extent in terms of adopting new technologies. Yeah, uh, it's a really great, great question because it's actually the story of the industry about how we, you know, rise that rising tide raises all boats. And I think that's the opportunity we have right now is those leaders we have in the industry are out doing really, really great things. How do we capture that and get those technologies to a point and those relationships to a point where? Everyone in the industry can can really start to uh, take advantage of it, and it really comes down to this is this is good business. If we get great technologies, and as we work towards that, we all mining's always been a technology business because of the business uh, model to it, right? The more efficient you can get as an operation, the better it is. So technology has always been at the forefront of that. So so as we see those business cases come in, um, and we're seeing it now. Uh, mining companies of all sizes are really looking to these opportunities. Many of the commodities uh, that are mined in this province, um, or at least directed by mine, mining companies in this province, are experiencing growth right now. You're in, a, I think, the up part of the cycle. But it is a cycle. 
Um, you as the president would also have, I guess, a role to make sure that companies are understanding what it is that they need to do responsibly while they're in the up cycle to be prepared for what is often a bit of a roller coaster. What What's your strategy around all of that sure. right now, Brian? Yeah, absolutely, Kirk. And the, the numbers just came out from our Pricewaterhouse uh, Cooper survey that we do annually. And yes, numbers are up uh, $11.7 billion last in 2017, as opposed to $8.7 billion in 2016. So quite an increase. And to your point, all based predominantly on commodity price increases. So we do know this is cyclical. So it's important as we contextualize those numbers to not uh, pretend that everything's great in the industry and that we can just sort of put our tools down and enjoy this. We have to build for the future. And so really our uh, three main points that, that we're talking about are the the three C's, as I call them, which is clarity, consistency, and coordination. And it's not something that you know governments provide us. This is about a dialogue amongst all stakeholders, including Indigenous peoples, communities, industry, government, the broader public. And in order to get to those three C's, we need to have that, that common dialogue. And that's really the power right now, because if we're going to capture this wave, we have to start right now. We all know how long it takes to, to get a mine from exploration into operation. We're talking, you know, dozens of years. So, so we need to be able to provide that supply to the, to the market as we continue this transition to a lower, lower carbon economy. Mm-hmm. Dozens of years and across several cycles, sometimes Absolutely. you have to sustain yeah. that. Aside from the fact that commodity prices are a little bit stronger on the upcycle, as you mentioned, what are some of the challenges you'd say exist right now for BC's industry? I think that's that's really, uh, you know, I, I view challenges as opportunities. So um, one sure. and the same. And I really look at those three C's as being our, our challenges and opportunities. And it's around um, a different way of dialoguing. You know, in the past, it was such it was a binary, really, discussion between industry and government. And we've seen over the years, and we've been leaders in that, actually, when you look at the review of the mining code we did a couple of years ago, that was the first time ever in a regulatory process where uh, Indigenous people, labor, industry and government sat around a table and, and came to a consensus uh, model for, for changes to our mining code and regulations. So that's kind of, that's the norm now. We've got a mining jobs task force. We've got environmental assessment revitalization. We've got professional reliance review. We've got rural strategy, strategies uh, ongoing. We've got a government that's very active right now on, on natural resource files. And so we really need to work with them in order to shape how this looks for a regulatory system like mining that starts at staking and, and goes through through the reclamation. So for example, you look at the environmental assessment revitalization, that's although a really important part of the regulatory cycle is only really just a small sliver of it. And there's all of these other, uh, you know, permitting and, and notices of work and other things that go with it. So we need to ensure we contextualize these conversations to get to the right regulations. I want to ask a bit about uh, the context and, and the North American context. And specifically, we've had about a year or so now to understand uh, some of the direction of the United States under Donald Trump. And part of it involves a great deal of uh, tax slimming, and certainly tax cuts at a corporate level. Um, and yet there is also this very great trade uncertainty for a lot of the things that we produce in this country. Uh, largely, what, what are you guiding the membership on in terms of its understanding of it? And, and I want to start with a specific question about whether you're worried that we're now becoming tax uncompetitive for corporations and whether we might fear losing some of them to below the border. 
Uh, absolutely, yes. I mean, we're seeing it right now as we speak. And, and this is not about one particular government or a particular time. This is something that's been happening for several years in Canada and, and in BC as well. So it's something we need to pay attention to right now. Capital is looking, capital is the most mobile thing out there. And, you know, I heard a great uh, quote the other day, money is a coward. So if it, if it sees risk, it's going to go to other places. And so in BC, we need to be able to provide that investor confidence and certainty. Mm-hmm. And I'm a big proponent of of the fact that I think we have the best regulatory system in the world. We have, we're a, we're a mining a hub for innovation. We've got great people. We need to t- start talking more proactively about what we have here in the province. But I'm telling you, we, we need to do it uh, in a way that's very quick right now because that capital is looking to be deployed. We're in this great cycle. And so we need to show the investor community that mines can be built in this province. And we, we need to it, work hard at that. Is it though, Brian, that, uh, that the U.S. is also uh, coupling some of these tax cuts with a deregulation of a lot of its industry? Is that something that, that you know that our governments have to then take some responsibility for and then begin to race to the bottom a little bit. Again, I I think we have a really strong regulatory system here and we should defend it and be proud of it. Um, And and I think that that's one of our competitive advantages is that we have an excellent regulatory system. We have a great rule of law. We have governments that care. So we need to focus on that and make sure that we we continue that on. But really around that tax competitiveness, around that cost competitiveness, when you look at carbon taxes, when you look at uh, corporate taxes, when you look at, you know, employer health taxes, all of these, all these things add up and uh, they make a really big difference in the global stage when you're, when you're competing against jurisdictions that don't have any of those. Yeah. And it, it makes it, uh, it makes it really real. And it's really incumbent upon all of us in BC, regardless of the industry, to remember that we're a tiny little trade exposed jurisdiction of 4 million people. And we operate amongst a sea of 7 billion people. And we're the gateway to the world. The, the goods that flow through that port right down the street there are Canada's goods. And, and so we have a responsibility as British Columbians to ensure that we, uh, that we get this right for all of Canada. To your point about investor confidence and security, how closely as an association are you watching, say, the challenges and issues around the Kinder Morgan Trans Mountain Pipeline? And does that reflect or, or potentially shed light on what could happen in the mining industry? We were paying very close attention to that. And in fact, we were part of uh, the, the group that, that signed a joint letter to the prime minister and to the two premiers, encouraging them to work together to, to find resolution on this. Again, the investor community globally is looking very carefully at this. When, when a company has permits in hand, um, you know, they should be able to build their project. This is an approved process that went through a rigorous regulatory uh, process that was, that's again, one of the best, if not the best in the world when you look at our processes in Canada. So we need to respect that and we need to, we need to know collectively that this affects all investment, not just in a natural resource base, but in everything in Canada. And so you'll see from that letter that was signed, it was signed from sectors across this nation, uh, not only British Columbia and not only in the natural resource sector, because we need to show our strength to the, to the rest of the world that we know how to get stuff done together in this country. We've had you on before to talk about trust and rebuilding trust in some of the processes that exist. How 
far along do you think we've come since maybe we've had you last on the program six, eight months ago? Yeah, I mean, it's been a really interesting year that I've been in, in this role. Um, and it's allowed for me to really um, trustfully dialogue in a different way about this industry and talk about what our opportunities are, uh, with, especially with our connection to the lower carbon economy. I, I don't know if you've seen or any of your listeners have seen our clean energy vehicle driving around uh, the streets of Vancouver, but we've we've got a clean energy vehicle and we've branded it with mining messages to talk about you know the fact that it takes four times more copper to build an electric car, the steel making coal that's required for the steel, the aluminum that that's going into cars. And that's really the way that we're engaging right now to say, okay, we have a responsibility, especially in BC where we're endowed, endowed with such great geology to extract our resources in the most responsible way because the world is going to need them. There's going to be 70 million electric cars on the road by 2025. They're predicting tw- uh, 20 million by 2020. You think of just that e- expansion on electric cars alone, not to mention the electricity that's required uh, to make that happen. We we need to do this. We need to do it together. And that's really where I'm engaging from with, with British Columbians to say, we, gotta, we, we, ha- we have to do this. We have to figure it out. So let's do it together. We're a year now since the provincial election and, and many months, I guess, since we finally had some clarity about who was going to form the government and, and what it was going to do in all of this. Were you... Um, uh, apprehensive about um, a new government like an NDP government when it was staking out such a position on something like Kinder Morgan that it was somehow going to commingle with its own commitment into the resource sector, particularly mining in particular? Uh, what, what I've seen on the mining side from the provincial government thus far has been really great engagement. Um, so they've been, they've committed themselves to mining. They've you know, proclaimed mining month. Did that surprise you a little bit? Uh, not really. They, I mean, they were very consistent throughout their platform that they wanted to support an, industries like mining. Mm-hmm. So they, they actually carried that through. And, you know, you look at the Mining Jobs Task Force and what we what the opportunity we have in that group. And I'll say I'm, I'm part of that task force. It's a really uh, interesting and great group of folks around the table, including First Nations, higher learning uh, institutions, industry. Uh, there's a financial person on it. So we've got this really great group that's having a conversation. Um, but I, as I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of regulatory reviews ongoing right now, and, and they're all at different stages. And importantly, they all involve um, Indigenous relations and implementing UNDRIP into it. And so we, we're working really hard to try and um, work with government to, so that the output of what comes out of all of these reviews is able to be implemented and importantly, provide that clarity, consistency and coordination to all stakeholders about what this regulatory process is. And that's, that's going to be the big one. I, Do you I believe really that you can reconcile, you know, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People with uh, sustainable, profitable mining? Absolutely. I I believe that our industry have been leaders. Uh, In in fact, we've been implementing many of the tenants of UNDRIP for years and years with our relationships with Indigenous people at our operations. And I think this is an opportunity for courage, willingness and leadership. And I think our industry needs to lead on this file. And we need to work with uh, Indigenous communities and the broader public to have this conversation. Because you know what, at the end of the day, it's about ensuring that Indigenous communities are healthy, that kids can go to school, that they have enough to eat, that that they have the same opportunities that my kids have. And I think if we start there and really um, try to get away from, you know, who owns what, because I think, again, it's all about um, it's all about people. And if we have that conversation, we lead with that, then we're actually getting down to what this is all about, which is healthy communities and a healthy British British Columbia. Brian, I know you have a very busy week. You're all over the province this week, but we really appreciate you taking the time to, to join us in studio. Thanks. It's great to be here. Appreciate it. 
That's Brian Cox, president and CEO of the Mining Association of BC. Stay with us a moment. We're going to move from mining to marijuana with a look at how some of Canada's biggest lending institutions are getting into the cannabis game. Are Canada's largest financial institutions starting to reconsider the cannabis industry? For months, it was really smaller lenders that were facilitating significant transactions. But we have a good example just this week, a $3.2 billion acquisition of MedRelief Corp by Aurora Cannabis represents yet another big play by the Bank of Montreal. With me today to talk about the implications of this deal, both from an industry perspective and a financial one, is our regular guest, Dan Sutton, founder and managing director at Tantalus Labs. Thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. Do you think it's only a matter of time before Canada's big five banks are all facilitating similar transactions? I think it absolutely is a matter of time. I mean, the the opportunity in the space is clear. The opportunity in recreational cannabis use is going to be substantial in the context of revenue. And uh, certainly all of the banks are sniffing around. We've had conversations with various uh, large financial institutions. And sure, they're a lot more conservative than maybe some of the lenders that are in the space right now. But once those revenue numbers start coming through from the recreational sales, especially for the larger companies, it uh, it's just too good of an opportunity to pass up. And we do hear that in Canada, we tend to be more conservative by nature. And this is an industry, the recreational side will be very new. And there's also often quite a bit of risk that accompanies it. In your conversations anecdotally or from what you're hearing from other producers, what do some of the lenders potentially expect? What are they looking to? What can when, What insight can you give us? Well, there's a great uh, unifying risk mitigator in any lender's mind, and that is revenue. If you have controlled costs and increasing revenue over time, uh, that's, I guess, uh, a principle you can take to any bank, take to the bank. And so these lenders are, are suggesting that, you know, for pre-revenue companies, it's definitely going to be difficult. But as you get into three, six, 12 months of backwards looking revenue growth, that is uh, going to be an opportunity that BMO in particular and, and various other of the large charter banks in Canada take very seriously. Has it been difficult for producers in the medical marijuana space to secure capital? Uh, it absolutely has. And we do not have the privilege of dealing with the most traditional uh, financial opportunities that various other companies do that aren't in such a nascent space and also such a contentious space. Um, but Tantalus Labs in particular, we've been dealing with more private or boutique lenders. And uh, we look forward to being able to to demonstrate the financial viability and conservative nature of things like our cap table and our debt load uh, so that we can start to seduce those, those more conser- conservative lenders uh, into our camp. And as an indication, of that too. We've seen a lot of IPOs, reverse takeovers, companies going public, I imagine to raise capital that maybe they struggle to do otherwise. Absolutely. And and that is targeting a very different demographic of investor. That's the, the retail investor. Yeah. And as we can see by the massive growth in market caps, that that's a, a demographic that's a lot more easier, easy to excite. Um, and those retail investors have a very different uh, perspective on risk and perspective on opportunity than more traditional lending. Um, so for those companies that have gone public and have done a great job of, of gathering traction with their investor relations activities, that certainly is a far cheaper cost of capital uh, than, than 
than more traditional private lending or private finance. Mm -hmm. The financial aspect uh, of this aside, just looking at the size of this deal, a $3.2 billion acquisition weeks after Aurora's acquisition of Cannabis Therapeutics closed, another $1.1 billion deal, I believe. I mean, what does this signal to you about sort of the way the industry is heading? Because Aurora now, I think, is the largest company in this space in the world by market cap. Uh, well, you'd have to ask Bruce Linton. I think he might have, <laughs> as the CEO of Canopy Growth, and, and he might disagree with you there. Um, but I have never seen a multi-billion dollar all-paper transaction in any industry get accomplished in five days. I pity the poor lawyers that were on that deal, and we're like, likely logging <laughs> 27-hour days uh, to make that deal happen. Uh, but I, I would assume that Aurora was doing due diligence on med relief you know, previous to that, uh, but it, it certainly is very aggressive important to note that there, this was a cashless transaction. They were only uh, transacting shares of Aurora for shares of MedRelief. Mm -hmm. MedRelief is a company that I deeply respect. Uh, so is Aurora. And it's exciting to see these sort of super titans coming together. But nonetheless, it is obviously a signal of exceptional froth in the space, a huge amount of excitement and uh, high, high expectations from Aurora investors that MedRelief is going to deliver on the value of that transaction and continue to be accretive to Aurora's portfolio. I'm sure those poor lawyers you mentioned were compensated very, very nicely for their hard work over those five days. When what, what, How does this position smaller producers now that we have massive companies? You mentioned Canopy, Aurora, one of them. They're growing and growing and acquiring on, on an incredible terror. How does this position smaller players? Well, I think it's really important to define the word big uh, because these large companies do have large market caps, but in terms of production volume, they're still very much catching up and will be over the next couple of years to investor expectations around A, production capacity, and B, ultimately revenue. So I don't think that there are any large cannabis companies in the space right now. There may be large cannabis companies in the context of market cap, but none of them have actually proven that they can execute on their business plans to quite the scope that has been promised to investors. So for companies like Tantalus Labs, smaller craft, small batch producers, we're just really focused on delivering on those revenue expectations. Can we cultivate at the scale, the conservative scale that we've projected to our investors and, and to our uh, essentially end use community? And then can we do that consistently over time to be able to drive revenue into a relatively low cost production platform? I think that's going to be the really exciting challenge. And if we continue to do that, obviously, uh, there's not only going to be potential exit opportunities or potential buyout opportunities for small producers. But in the case of Tantalus Labs, we really just care about uh, creating an awesome business. We want to create a sustainable business. You know, I'm 31 years old and if they'll let me, I want to be running this business for 20 years to come. <laughs> uh, so it's about creating long-term viability, uh, economic sustainability, and, and ultimately serving a British Columbian cannabis market that's discerning, that's specialized, that really cares about the end product. We're a little less worried about the numbers as long as we can make sure that we are uh, keeping the lights on and paying the bills. We're going to continue to focus on quality production and, and building a sustainable brand over time. As any business owner in any industry really wants to try and do. Absolutely. Or so they should. I mean, there is certainly a lot of money to be made in, in the short-term excitement uh, on the Canadian public markets, as we've seen over the last couple of years. But uh, that's a very different game. That's that's selling shares, not sh selling cannabis. And Tantalus Labs, for one, is certainly in the business of selling cannabis. Speaking of selling cannabis, there's another story this week. Vancouver City Councilor Melissa DiGenova put forward a motion that targets Vancouver dispensaries. One, it would require them to sell cannabis from federally licensed producers. 
the city would also be looking to ask dispensaries to provide audited information and financial statements. This seems to contradict sort of what we're seeing at the provincial level where all cannabis needs to be purchased from a centralized distribution system. What do you make of this uh, in terms of a first look at what's being proposed here? Well, I, I think it's really important to clarify, and, and whether the councillors that put this forward appreciate this or not, licensed producers cannot lawfully sell to dispensaries. So suggesting that dispensaries need to buy exclusively from licensed producers is actually potentially a nail in the coffin for those operators, because no licensed producer is going to risk uh, their, their the substantial value of their federal license to sell to a dispensary. And so, you know, what this does do is, is shed some light on the critical nature of the discussion around dispensaries and how they will either effectively transition to become private retailers that are buying from a centralized distributor or moreover just become professional lawful businesses. Uh, One of the nuances here is not only can they not purchase from licensed producers as licensed producers would be unwilling to sell, but I think it's very unlikely that we would see any firms, any accounting firms in Vancouver or in Canada that do have the capacity to perform audits and financial audits uh, actually do so while receiving money from the proceeds of crime. So you're actually going to have a hard time finding an auditor that would even perform an audit on a dispensary uh, simply because they cannot accept the proceeds from a dispensary that have been selling cannabis that does come from an unregulated and unlicensed supply chain as it stands today. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. It's clear too, because one of the other aspects would be allowing police to say, enter these dispensaries without a warrant to seize a legal product like they would for other illegal operations. The city wants to crack down in some way on dispensaries. That much is clear. Whether they're going to have to change things with this proposal, I guess we'll wait and see what they do. Is there sort of emerging maybe a a best course of action to try and integrate dispensaries into the broader legalized market and and one in a very legal, of course, way that stamps out sort of organized crime and illegal activity? There's really no way that probably the gross majority of dispensaries will be able to maintain anything close to their business that they perform today and be able to to come over to a regulated supply chain buying from a, a centralized distributor from the BCLDV. There are a lot of great operators in that business, and I think the only course of action for them is to go through the application process, become a legitimate distributor, acknowledge that their products are going to inherently be more scarce and less diversified, probably over the next 18 to 24 months. And then we will see a Cambrian explosion of new offerings, new products, the potential inclusion of edibles and concentrates, vaporization, et cetera, that is hopefully going to come in mid to late 2019 under federal legislation. But ultimately, if a dispensary thinks that they are going to be buying unpackaged pounds from the black market and selling them in a legal way, that's absolutely not the future of legal cannabis retail in British Columbia. And those producers really need, or I should say retail, really need to wake up and smell the coffee that this is going to be a new era, a new change, and uh, the, the, the incredible revenue runs that some of them have had over the last five years are coming to an end. This proposal, as you mentioned, it does not fit with Health Canada regulations. It also wouldn't fit with provincial legislation around this either. What does that suggest to you about the way all levels of government are sort of approaching this issue? Because on this particular issue, they seem a bit out of sync. Well, instinctually, it does appear that there's a bit of a lack of sophistication around federal cannabis law and provincial cannabis proposed regulation uh, from the particular councillors that tabled uh, this motion. But ultimately, I think there could be some politics at play here. 
you know, the, the existing regulation uh, in the MMRU, the, the retail cannabis uh, policies that the, the city of Vancouver has put out uh, should be coming into question in, now that we do have a, a trajectory forward and ultimately uh, the facilitation of an illicit supply chain, albeit in zoned and and location regulated dispensaries it's just a half measure it doesn't effectively uh you know promote patient safety promote patient uh standardization regulation in products and so at the end of the day that the dispensary system in vancouver needs to change and i think that uh these these counselors are are demonstrating that the original legislation in the mmru was not effective and now we need to revise it in the context of a trajectory to legal recreational retail sales in the province we've spoken to you before on the show about about the way the federal government and provincial government have consulted stakeholders, be it businesses, individuals, uh, policymakers, what have you. What's the city of Vancouver doing, to your knowledge? Um, I, I've had a few conversations with uh, with Carrie Jang and some other representatives of the city of Vancouver, and I think that they're always ready to listen. But ultimately, uh, we, we haven't seen much in terms of policy consultation or any kind of formal frameworks around that. And this is largely because the municipalities are kind of the lowest rung on the ladder in terms of reactivity. They have to respond to what the federal government is doing. They have to respond to what the province is doing. And so there is sort of a feeling, even at the provincial level, that we're kind of flying by the seat of our pants. Uh, and I think the, the Vancouver city is just going to do the best that they can to adapt to new regulation as it becomes law. Yeah, fair enough. And to be totally fair, we're still waiting for some clarity at the provincial level too, which would certainly affect what municipalities have to do. Dan, as always, really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for your time. That's Dan Sutton, founder and managing director at Tantalus Labs. And you've been listening to BIV Today. Thanks so much for joining us. Please feel free to subscribe and give us a positive rating on iTunes. You can also find more stories and past episodes over at BIV.com. We'll be back tomorrow. 